So we are sitting down today with Anthony Joe from Gaijinpot. Hello, Anthony. Hey guys, how's it going? It's wonderful to have you on. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, thanks for having me. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, Gaijinpot is a website that can help you find a job in Japan, as well as a bunch of other things that I think you're familiar with, Anthony. Yeah, we are uh, probably the largest English language uh, job board here in Japan, but we also have a lot of uh, services and um, for people who are already living here. Like uh, we have a forum, we have a classifieds, we have blogs written by fellow expats. So we try to help uh, help our fellow Englishmen who are living here. For the for the listeners all over the world, what well, what what's the full URL for the Gaijinpot website? Gaijinpot.com. Gaijinpot.com. So yeah. there it is. And that's G A I J I N. P-O-T. I, I've had a number of friends mix the G and the J, so uh, just for really? clarity. Yeah. <laughs> I had I had a friend do that the other day where I said Gaijin Pot, and they said, oh, got it a little mixed up. So right off the bat, if someone goes to your site, what are they going to see with regards to jobs? Because a lot of people who listen are wanting to go over to Japan. They're wanting to explore Japan and whatever conceptions they may or may not have. What kind of jobs are available here? And what are the qualifications that people need to get them or salaries? Well, um, once again, it kind of depends on the candidate and what your, you know, your educational background is, what your qualifications are. Um, the most common job that most people probably get is an English teaching job. If you're a foreigner and you don't speak much Japanese, that's probably one of the easiest jobs to get. And so Gaijinpot certainly has a, a, a lot of English teaching jobs on there. Um, but it really kind of depends on, like I said, the candidate and what your skill set is. When you say English teaching jobs, I know that there are a couple of different types of jobs that people can get. And there's the, uh, you can take the Eikaiwa route, which is sort of a, a private company that teaches people one-on-one. And then there's also the people are ALTs or assistant language teachers which are normally placed in public schools so what are the different types of job qualifications that you'd say exist for these types of jobs uh, for most English teaching jobs and actually most jobs in, in I think all jobs in Japan you first have to have a four a minimum four-year bachelor's degree and this is a rule set by the government so that you can qualify for a work visa for when your company sponsors you so if you don't have that degree, um, you can't get a work visa, and therefore you can't work in Japan. So that's the first thing that you need to get. Yeah. So in other uh, words, you have to graduate from college. That's right. That's right. One, one question, just elaborating on that, because we do have an international audience. I know there are some countries that have negotiations with Japan to allow work, working holidays where someone can come in. I think it's for a year or maybe six months. And the visa that they come in with, they're allowed to work under, however, only for that time. It's not a renewable thing. It's something that they can come in and they can have a long holiday and get kind of a part-time job to help sustain themselves is my understanding of why they were invented. Are there jobs out there for people like that? If, for, if there's a listener in Australia, I know Australia has one who wants to come over for six months or a year. Would it be possible to find a job easily, or, or do you have any experience in in uh, with that? Yeah, the working holiday visa is a good visa for you know young any young person who wants to come over because there's an age cap on it. 
most of the English language schools, they themselves require that you have uh, a degree. So uh, if you don't have that uh, and then you come over, it's, it's difficult to find work. Um, it also would depend on your Japanese level because if you don't speak Japanese, the amount of jobs that are open to you is extremely limited. So even if you do come over on a working holiday visa, if your Japanese is not, you know, pretty good, you're kind of limited to what you can work. Makes sense. Yeah, I've, so, seen, I've seen a lot of job postings online, and uh, it seems like most professional business-type jobs require at least a Niku Japanese proficiency. So, I mean, Or that, JLPT level, too. Yeah, and I, and I know people that have been in Japan for several years that still aren't Niku yet, so it's pretty high up there, but I guess they don't really... My, at least at least in my personal experience you're not necessarily required to know Japanese to teach in like a public school teach English no most of those jobs I mean they, they don't even they don't even want you to speak any Japanese in your job you know um, so you can get away with uh, just strictly speaking English but if you want to kind of get out of the English teaching world and branch into you know corporate Japan then obviously the, the more Japanese you can speak the better the better opportunities actually will come for you. So, of course, as you mentioned, having Japanese skills will only open more doors, as I think is probably obvious enough to say, but still merits saying. And being a native English speaker will get you lots of jobs. Is there anything else that looks good or bad on a resume or, or a CV that people should should try to have or try to highlight if they do have anything that employers in Japan look at and think this is really good like having a long time at one company or having a, a fancy title previously etc cetera, etc cetera. well we get a uh, we certainly get a lot of resumes through Gaijin Pa a lot of interesting ones and uh, I can tell you some some you know quick tips that that our employers they look for um, and it's really small things. You you wouldn't think of you know people would make these kind of mistakes. But one of the things that uh, is kind of unique to a Japanese resume is that uh, you put your photograph on your resume here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know back in uh, Canada that wasn't common. I don't think it's very common in, in other countries. But here, many Japanese companies require that you put a photograph. And I don't know if you ever seen a Japanese resume, but the photograph that goes on this resume typically looks like your passport photograph. Think about <laughs> when you go get your driver's license or your passport. That's the type of photograph that you should put on your resume. You should be wearing a suit. You should have a nice, clean, white background. And uh, you should try to look as professional as you can. However, many people don't know this. And so when they see that you know, there's a, a requirement for photograph, they flip over to their Facebook page and grab one from their spring vac- vacation or something like that and slap that on their resume. And of mm-hmm. course, that doesn't work at all. Um, some of them even put a photograph with more than one person in it. So, you know, they got their road drinking with their buddies and someone <laughs> takes a, a selfie or something and they put a photograph. And of course, the employer doesn't know which one of the three people in the photo is the actual applicant. So no, uh, so no 3 a.m. drunken rave parties? Yeah, probably not the best impression you're going to make uh, to your potential Japanese employer. No, no, no pictures of yourself buried buried up to your neck in the sand at the beach? No. And you know what? <laughs> not, another thing to actually think about, though, is, you know, and this applies to job hunting like all over the world, but 
many of these companies, Japanese companies here, they use foreigners in their HR department to hire other foreign teachers, right? Yeah. And so all these foreigners are very social media savvy. So not only will they take a look at your resume, but they'll find you on Facebook and take a look through your Facebook photos to see kind of what you're like, what you're really like, and do they want to hire you. So if your Facebook wall is filled with your 3 a.m. drunken parties, that might affect uh, <laughs> how the potential employer sees you. I definitely have to go on Facebook right now and erase all those pictures. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you said, though, not to get off topic, but just as, as someone with a business background who, who likes to look out for people, that's just good common sense business <laughs> advice because almost every company in the world now is starting to look at Facebook before they hire someone. So... Right. Keep it clean, I think it's a it really good idea. If, if, you're, if you're looking for work, lock down the privacy controls on your social media. You know? Right. Uh, make sure that you're aware of what the public can see before you start sending out your resume. Then once they hire you, you can maybe open it up a bit more. <laughs> but you, you kind of want to present the best, uh, best image of yourself. And if uh, your Facebook contradicts that, it could go against you. One more question regarding the CV resume. Should it be in Japanese or English, or does it matter? Uh, it should be in English. It depends. If you're, if you're applying for an English teaching job, it can be in English. Um, if you're applying at an actual Japanese company and your Japanese level is high enough that you can fill it out in Japanese, then it's a good idea to do so. Um, but for most of the applicants, if you're applying for an English teaching job, having a well-written you know, resume in English is, is fine. Um, one thing to really consider too is when you do write your resume, uh, having a proper cover letter is very important. And ha I shouldn't have to say this, but, but it's funny how many times we see this, is that having proper spelling and grammar in your cover letter is important when you're applying for an English teaching job. <laughs> and when you say a proper cover letter, just for people listening that may not know what that means, are you, are you speaking about you know, writing actually writing an individual cover letter for each for each application, not just you know changing the dear so and so. I would, yeah. yeah, I would. I mean, it helps you stand out because you know, we've seen this also too, where people send a, a generic cover letter to three different companies and then they forget to change the name <laughs> of the company, so that doesn't look good. Um, I've done a number of. Uh, interviews and articles on Gaijinpot uh, talking with actual recruiters here in, in Japan and these are videos that people can see and they talk about how if they get a customized cover letter how important it is that, that what's in that cover letter they do place a lot of importance on that because that's where they kind of look to see how much how much you've researched the company how professional you are and a little bit about your your character and your personality mm -hmm. so if you just grab some generic one off the web chances are they've already seen that it uh, doesn't do uh, do your resume a lot of favors. Yeah. Well, you, we've talked a lot about English jobs, and that is the most common route for people to come over here. Can you get a job teaching English even if your native language isn't English? Yeah, you can. You certainly can. There's a lot of people that do. Um, obviously though the demand is not as strong uh, as it is for a native speaker. Mm -hmm. um, however, saying that, um, Japan now is starting to realize that not all English spoken is American English. Yes. And so they are starting to hire more 
uh, non-native speakers to, and actually this is a demand from the students to give the students a more global sense of, uh, of the English that's spoken around the world. So you can certainly, uh, you know, get an English teaching job even if you're not a native speaker. Um, however, your English level should be quite high. Now, this question may seem a little silly because if someone's listening to this podcast, they their English is probably very, very high. However, is there a demand for educators in languages other than English? So, say, Russian or Korean, uh, Spanish, German. In- interesting question. Uh, there is, but not once again, not as much. Mm-hmm. What's, what's kind of unique about those languages, though, is that I've known people who teach uh, other languages other than English, and they actually do quite well. Uh, teaching private students mm. and the reason why is because most of the, the foreigners come here to work teach English but not all Japanese people want to learn English some want to learn French some want to learn Swedish some want to learn you know Korean so your competition is actually quite a bit lower mm. so the, there might not be a school that might hire you but uh, there's a lot of opportunity to gain private students by teaching non-English languages interesting I didn't know about that. Yeah, I think you can do quite well teaching privately. I, the the rate for a private teacher is probably between thirty and forty U.S. dollars an hour. So yeah, especially if you're if you're teaching a non-English language, I mean, it, it can be quite high. So if you string together a few private uh, students every day, you can uh, create a nice little side income for yourself. So as you said, an employer has to help you get a visa. So how how does one get a visa? Let's say someone has gone on Gaijin Pot and has been successful in finding a corporate mate for themselves here in Japan. What is the visa process like to go about getting a visa? Uh, for that, the company will have to sponsor you. It's a really complicated process. Um, so that's why it's the best thing to do is get the company to sponsor you and then they will usually handle it all for you. Um, you just have to send them the required documents that they ask for. I know a company, a friend of mine recently came here on, uh, through ECC as a large English language economy chain here. And uh, it was I was really surprised at how easy her process was. The company um, sponsored her visa, sent her all the necessary documents, showed up at the airport, picked her up, wow. took, her, took her to her apartment. Here's your, here's your keys to your apartment. Here's your gaijin card. And they had everything all prepared. So, yeah, the best thing to do is if you find a job, apply for it. If the company does like you and they want to hire you, they will start the visa process for you. And basically, you just have to send them the documents that uh, they require. With with regards to your friend's experience, it sounds like that company had a lot of experience bringing people over. You said it was a large Akaiwa chain. Hmm. What are the pros and cons of going with a large chain company like GABA or Nova or Kokojuku is a, a recent one over going with a smaller local Akaiwa school? Because if you look through Gaijinpot, you can definitely tell the difference just in the little pictures next to the job posting. Right. You'll see that green GABA or that blue Kokojuku logo, and you can see all the jobs posted by then. And, of course, then you'll see smaller, maybe more homegrown let's say logos sprinkled within around them that are more of the local akaiwa or school the ones look like they made it in like word (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's let's go with something like that (laughs) well i mean both have their pros and cons it's kind of like 
asking like, you know, what's it like to work for Apple Computer versus Bob's Computer Shop around the corner, right? Mm. They're two really completely different uh, situations. So both have good points and bad points. Um, to take like the large company, um, you just like working for any large company, you'll probably have uh, a set curriculum that the company will have for you. Um, you'll have probably set hours, set students. It'll be a lot more rigid. You'll have a, a set schedule. Um, so if you kind of like that, usually the larger companies like this, like this ECC one, they've handled lots of uh, students coming in, so they're quite familiar with uh, the visa process, and they're also familiar with any issues that you may encounter when once you get here, because um, they've dealt with so many students before. So. You know, if you're kind of worried about coming to Japan, probably a larger school would would be a little bit uh, a little bit better because you may freak out the first time you get your phone bill or something because you can't read it. But the school has dealt with you know thousands of teachers who've had that same situation, so they know exactly what to do. Well, that happens uh, to me like every day. <laughs> <laughs> this looks really official and important. And yeah. I can't read it, so I'm just gonna wait until the police come or they send a bill. <laughs> I just wait till something gets turned off in my apartment, and then okay, that's what that was. Yeah, I'll right? take it to the company and pay it. <laughs> Although I will say that if you get something in your mail that has a barcode on it, that means you owe the money. Yeah, right. and you can pretty much pay any bill you'll receive in Japan at a, at any convenience store. Yeah, it's pretty great. You know what kind of threw me though when I first moved here is they also they also send you the receipt in the mail. Yes, I have. Gotten like, a I think it's a gas those. receipt or something like that. So they send you. So I can't read the difference between like the receipt and the bill. And so I would just go to the konbini sometimes with the receipt and try to pay this pay this receipt. <laughs> and the guy's like, No, 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 you don't need to pay this. I'm like, Oh, great. <laughs> so then when the bill comes, I'm like, Oh, great. I don't have to pay this either. Great. <laughs> no, then a week uh, later, my electricity gets shut off. I'm like, what happened there? <laughs> no $85 phone bill? Great. I'll take 700 cans of, uh, of Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that brings up an interesting question. One of the things when I came over here, and I think it's safe to say that Mitsugi went through the same same thing, was almost a, a shell shock with regards to money and getting things set up. I feel like there it are... It was shocking. <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of things that you don't think about that exist in your day-to-day -day life. Like internet. Internet's one of those things. The world has internet, right? You don't have to pay for that or get it set up. It just exists. And then you realize, no, wait, yes, you have to pay for that and get it set up. So... What are the expected startup costs for moving abroad? Any anything uh, that you you see, or or maybe even things from that people would normally expect. Uh, uh, before I get to that, let me just go back to your previous question, comparing the sure. large chain to the smaller school, because I didn't answer you about the the smaller schools. Oh, okay. So, uh, I'm sorry. So, like I said, like the large the large chains, you know, they're it's just like a large company, right? They're a little bit more secure. They have a set course, set curriculum. You'll probably teach the same students uh, regularly. You can develop a relationship with the students. Um, you may there may be a union involved. You probably get paid over time, although that's not all for every company. But uh, um, so that's kind of the good points of a large company like that. Some of the bad points are just like. Um, 
like any large company, you are just one of a thousand teachers there. So they can be a little bit less personal um, mm-hmm. in dealing with you because if you don't like the situation, you don't like the curriculum or whatever, uh, you can be replaced quite easily. Um, so quickly about the, the smaller schools. The smaller schools, obviously, um, they may have a more flexible uh, curriculum. They may allow you to have more creative uh, control over what you teach and how you teach. So if you do have a teaching background you and you do have kind of this uh, idea of how you want to teach things, a smaller ikawa could be a good fit for you um, because usually they don't have the resources of a large company to lay out a full, you know, full-term curriculum. So smaller ones are, are kind of good for that. Um, they're usually a little bit more personal because they, they need to take care of their teachers. They don't have a big list of teachers who could step in your shoes in case you, you want to leave. So um, they will take care of you a bit more. Uh, many of them kind of be uh, mom and pop type of shops. So um, if you are having trouble at home paying your bills or you know you don't understand something, you can bring it and, and you know they'll help translate it for you. So um, those kind of smaller ones, I find that they usually have a little bit of a, a better connection with the, with the teachers than the larger schools. Having said that, the smaller ones, uh, sometimes the pay can be a bit lower. You may not have as many benefits as, as a large uh, school does. Um, but like I said, you may have a little bit more of an authentic experience, shall I say, and a little bit more personal experience in a, in a smaller chain. Excellent. So, so then going back to the question that I jumped in a little too quickly with, what is the expected startup cost for moving from abroad? Probably the biggest one that will freak people out is when you get your apartment. Mm, <laughs> yes. Um, because here in Japan, they do things a little bit differently when it comes to getting your apartment. Uh, in that there's a lot of upfront fees you have to pay before you even get the keys. Um, and so to quickly go through some of these, of course you'll have to pay you know, usually a couple of months worth of rent as a deposit and that's kind of common. Then you'll usually have to pay the real estate agent's fee which is usually about a month's worth of rent. Um, there's another thing that a lot of people know about called the key money a lot of people complain about. And if you don't know what key money is, it's more or less a bribe to the owner of the apartment to rent you the apartment. And this is something that you know started a long time ago in Japan. And uh, a lot of people hate it, but they just keep doing it for, I don't know why, but. It's, it's the most, it is the most strange, it's the strangest cultural thing that I experienced myself because it's so weird to me that here I'm going to give you thank you money for letting yeah. me pay you money from here on. Right. Here, here is a gift of money to say thank you for letting me continue to pay you money. As I understand it, now I, I could be wrong with it. I probably am wrong, but what I kind of understand is this started, I believe it was after the war when there was a housing shortage in Japan. So landlords had a lot of power because oh. they had they had the property and then you got a list of 20 people waiting outside your door for your apartment it was started with those 20 people mm. saying hey here I'll give you a little bit extra if you give it to me and as you guys know living in Japan things rarely change here yeah. <laughs> and, if ever you know, so these landlords I mean they have no incentive to want to change it and you've you know Japanese consumers aren't exactly the most vocal people in the world right they're 
Yeah. They just kind of like accept it. So I think the if I'm correct and that's where it started, I think that's kind of what happened is, you know, the landlords, they don't want to change it. The consumers, they don't say anything because they just think that's the way it is. And it's those crazy gaijin who come over here and say, hey, what the hell is this? It's ridiculous. Um, and it is. I mean, what it is, key money is basically a bribe. It's like a gift to the, to the landlord that I'll, thanks for giving me this place. Here's one or two months rent. Depends on the landlord how much they want. So you got to think that you got like a couple months rent of your deposit, a month's rent for the agency fee, two months rent for uh, key money, and then there's probably um, a lock changing fee and cleaning the apartment fee and a bunch of other fees, whatever other fee they can think of. And then you're so, broke. <laughs> right. And then so it's not uncommon when you get your apartment that to pay five or six months of your rent right up front. And this can be a big shock because say, you know, you're renting an apartment for like say 800 bucks or something like that and you think, hey, that's that's not bad. I'm living close to Akihabara, 800 bucks. And then when you go to sign on the dotted line, they're like, no, 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 we need 4,800 from you to move into your completely empty Japanese apartment. Because most apartments here are not rented furnished. They're rented unfurnished. And and, and, and let's be clear, that 4,800 is not refundable. Yeah, that, you don't yeah, get that back. The other thing. Yeah, it's not like you're getting that back. Well, you might get your deposit back. Right? Yeah, you might get two months of deposit back, but the key money, cleaning fees, all agency fee, and all that—that's just gone. So to answer your question, like as far as budget, I mean, so think about it, you've moved into your place; it's totally empty now. You got to go buy all this furniture. Meanwhile, you have to live, right? You got to eat, and you, you maybe you started work, so you got to trans—you know—get yourself to work. You got to buy some work clothes. Uh, you got to get yourself a mobile. Um, so I would uh, I would budget um, around ten thousand dollars if you're coming to the city. If you're coming uh, if you if you're being placed like in the rural part of Japan, it could be a bit cheaper um, because some of those um, schools that place you in the uh, rural or inaka part of Japan, <laughs> they sometimes they provide housing. I did um, see a number of schools offering when I was looking offering housing and of course it looks nice when you're you're looking from abroad just from the perspective of oh I don't have to worry about that. Right. But since moving over here and having the experience that I've had those places that those jobs seem a lot sweeter now. Yeah. So we we talked to, for a minute about rural and city and and pros and cons. And I think when it comes to rural or urban, that's something that is a very personal choice for people. And while I do think there are, are things that are good and bad that people don't recognize right away until they live it about both, what is the likelihood of finding a job in a big city over a more rural location? And where do most people end up? Because most of the people who I talk to who just kind of have that notion of, I want to go to Japan and I want to live in Japan normally will follow that with and i want to live in tokyo osaka kyoto and and give the the hitchhiker's guide of the biggest cities out right, there right right uh well most likely if you're coming over and like a school is sponsoring you most likely you'll end up in a rural location um just because like you said everybody wants to live in tokyo or live in a city and so the competition here for jobs a lot higher. Um, so for you coming overseas, brand new, never taught before, for a company, it's a little bit of a risk. It's easier for them to hire 
you know, uh, teachers within the city. So chances are, if you're coming over, they'll probably place you in a rural location. But like you guys said, it's not necessarily a bad thing because you, you would hop on a train, you can be in the city quite quickly. Um, there's a lot of other benefits to living in the rural part of Japan too. I mean, one of the cost of living is a lot cheaper. Um, typically, some of these places are not that large, so you, you don't need a car, or you can, you know, sometimes the school give you a bicycle or something like that. And and you know, many people say that the living in the rural parts gives you the real Japan, the real experience. <laughs> yeah, the real. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what that really means because yeah. to me, I mean, the city and the the rural kind of it's just all Japan to me. But I suppose. You get kind of more authentic uh, Sorry, Japanese experience. You live in fake Japan in Tokyo. Yeah, yeah. everyone's been lying to you. <laughs> I, I gotta say, even up here where, where it's quote unquote maybe suburban. Right. I mean, we're it's still inundated with uh, McDonald's and Starbucks and uh, cr- and you know we have a couple Krispy Kremes and. Right. We have Krispy Kremes here. I actually found one. Did yeah. you? Yeah, I did. And you held out on me about that. Well, you know, you gotta have your secrets. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, Japan's pretty westernized. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, people will say that. But, but I mean, I suppose if you are in a really small town, um, you you get a more Japanese experience, put it that way. Probably not a lot of the foreigners around there. So, you know, if you're, if you're trying to learn the language, it's definitely a lot, uh, a lot easier to, to do that um, because there probably won't be anybody that speaks English besides your school, besides your, your, your work. Um, there, so you can make Japanese. It's probably easier to make Japanese friends. Um, some of the downsides living in a rural part, though, that many people experience is kind of the loneliness because you you may be the only foreigner there, and for many people that might be the first time that they've lived in a city and they're the only foreigner. And uh, you know, sometimes obviously it's nice to go out with go for drinks with people who speak the same language that you do you yeah. kind of relax a bit and so if you are the only foreigner it can be a bit tough um, I've heard also too some of these other some of these rural areas not a lot to do so it can be a little bit boring um, but you'll but, sorry but, but you'll find a you'll find a nice Japanese old man that'll come and speak English to you yeah. <laughs> someone will speak English and they'll find you <laughs> yeah or they'll try to speak English and they'll find you exactly uh, so I, I think that most people, if they're if they're coming over here, chances are they'll end up in the rural area. And then a lot of companies actually, you know, in the city, they look they look to poach teachers from the rural area. So if you don't want to stay there, it's not hard to get transferred to a job in the city. Yeah, actually, I had a, I had a I was going to ask you a question. Is it once you're here in Japan, do you find that it's easier to find a job, a different job? So let's say, so let's say you came to Japan, you're working for an Aikawa, they put you up in Aomori. So you're, so you're way up north. You're, you're cold. You're freezing. You want to live in Osaka. So right. once you're in Japan already, do you find that it's easier for people to sort of island hop their way to a better job in a better place? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Most of the jobs in Ganyapa require that you be in Japan. Ah. And this is because, you know, um, for a lot of these companies, if they are sponsoring your visa, uh, there's a lot of restrictions and scrutiny done by the government. Because if, if say, say you do a runner, you know, you come here and you, you, you are, get this work visa, then you disappear kind of into Rapongi underground or something like that, <laughs> you, you know, you become a criminal, or whatever, it can, it can come back onto the school, mm. right? So they um, they do like to do a lot of in-person interviews 
they are starting to realize you can do the same thing over Skype, but uh, um, they do still like to see you in person. So, you know, Japan really is kind of a face-to-face type of country. That's how business is done here. So, yeah, absolutely. If you're if you're here in Japan and your Japanese is getting better, um, your the opportunities are are way more than uh, overseas. Going back for just a minute to housing, how exactly do you go about finding a uh, an apartment or a place to live in Japan if you don't get one of those super sweet deals with your job and is it possible to find gaijin flats or houses outside of big cities I know there are specialty places in Tokyo that are kind of the I don't know in my mind they're kind of gaijin halfway homes minus minus the drugs where it's like the gaijin can go there and, and live there for a couple months and I've seen those I mean for me I got really lucky when I came over here and there was someone in my the company that hired me who was very nice and really helped with the house hunting process, but you can't <laughs> count on that happening, I, I suppose I, you could say. Yeah, one of the things that you'll have to remember or, like, or be aware when you first come here, especially if you're coming from America, is the word mansion here means totally different than what you think in America. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> when I first came here, I was like, sweet, a mansion for like 700 bucks, Awesome. And then, oh, wait a minute. This is like a studio. <laughs> what happened to the mansion? So mansions here are basically <laughs> like apartments. Not exactly like the uh, big mansions you know, that, w- that we think it is. What was um, the, the criteria was like it's made out of cinder blocks or something, and something has, like that. It has yeah. like a central, like one entrance into it with like elevators, and so it's it's, it's it's odd. It's just it's basically just a, an apartment block. But um, uh, well, you know, if we go on Gajin Pot, we have an apartment section that uh, has like you know thousands of listings for apartments. And the good thing is, is all the agents that are on here speak English, so you can start there. Um, one of the things that you'll have to kind of think about when looking for an apartment is where your work is. Mm-hmm. And this actually kind of threw me in the beginning is because I didn't have an understanding of kind of the layout of Tokyo. And so when you search for apartments, you know, it asks you like what train line do you want to be near or what station do you want to be near, but I had no idea. So, you know, using a, a real estate agent. Uh, can make this process a whole lot easier. You tell them where you work, you tell them approximately how how far you're willing to commute, and they can start to look for apartments uh, within that area. Um, and like I said, people can do that on Gajinpa. We have a big apartment section there. For the rural areas, what I would do is just start to contact real estate agents, yeah. you know, because they're the ones who, especially, you know, in some of these rural areas, some landlords may not be too friendly with renting to a foreigner, and they might not even advertise in English. But if you can contact a Japanese real estate agent, they can make the connection for you, and they will have the big list of, of places, you know, available. And one thing to consider too is that it to get an apartment actually takes quite a long time. Yeah. How long that, exactly? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little bit uh, jaded because I I moved here <laughs> from Thailand. And in Thailand, I mean, you can in Bangkok, you can get a fully furnished apartment right away. You you see it, you like it, you give the landlord a month's rent, he hands you the key, done. So I kind of expected something like that when I moved here to Japan, but I was surprised to find out that the application process can take over a week. Yeah. So you find the apartment you like, great, I like it, let's start. So you fill out all the paperwork, and then it takes like a week or more 
for them to decide. So if you're coming over here and you're staying in, say, a hotel or you're staying at friend's place or something like that, consider that, you know, it may be like a week or more before you, after you apply before you actually find out if you're approved or not. Yeah, I remember when I got over here and I was going through the process, just kind of a mention to what something you said, one of the real estate agents that I was going through, on, I was down to like two places and they were like, don't worry, we already told the owner that you're foreign. Oh, yeah. And and I had a moment where I was like, what does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> Is my money a different color? And and then the person who was helping me through the process for my company explained, you know, a lot of people don't want to rent to foreigners. And there are a lot of times that you'll get to the final stage and it's the final meeting of sign on the dotted line. And then the person doesn't want to do it because they're like, oh, I didn't realize this person was a foreigner. So as crazy and as kind of yeah. sad as it is to say, make sure that if you're going through a real estate agent, they've, I mean, I'm sure they will if they're a good real estate agent because they know, but make sure that that they've conveyed yeah. that. <laughs> I don't want to say Japan's racist, but you might see a little bit of that here and there. Yeah. In my experience, at least. Yeah, I think the whole thing with that, I mean, a lot of people get kind of bent out of shape about it, but I think what that really kind of comes down to is, is part of it is cultural. I mean, certainly you probably do have some landlords who are racist. Um, I think that's actually a very small percentage. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, um, just like you would in any country, I mean, I've lived in many countries around the world and I've been denied apartments for whatever reason. So just like in any country, um, you can experience that. I think uh, part of it is is cultural in that you have to understand Japanese culture is they really try to avoid any uncomfortable situations as much as possible. And as strange as it may sound to us, in the landlord's mind, if there's an emergency or something and he cannot communicate with you, to him that's that's very uncomfortable and he actually worries and thinks about things like that. And so if there's a Japanese couple that's applying and you're applying at the same time, for him, it's a lot easier and safer to go with the Japanese couple because he knows there, there'll be no situation where he, you know, there'll be a, an embarrassing moment or he cannot communicate. Yeah. And then, I mean, I've actually heard that it's, it's part of the law in that when you get into your apartment, the gas guy comes around and he has to explain to you how to shut your gas off in your building. Yes. And because, uh, you know, there's a lot of wooden apartments here, and obviously Japan's a very earthquake prone place. So uh, it's important that you know how to shut your gas off uh, in case there's an earthquake. Well, if you can't understand what he's saying, um, that obviously causes a problem not only for you, but the other tenants in your building. Yeah. So there's a lot of kind of cultural reasons why they may not rent to you. But having said that, um, there's certainly no shortage of apartments in Japan, especially in Tokyo. So I think it's relatively easy to find someone who will rent to you. So one one final question from us. Found a job, found an apartment, got started on all of the above. And there are always those people who, you know it happens because you'll look on Gaijinpot and halfway through or even three months into the school year, you'll see positions opening up that were supposed to go for the entire school year. So you know someone got into a job and bailed out on it. 
So what do you find makes most people leave Japan? On a business or cultural side, what are the largest points of difficulty that you see occur, be it through the blogs that get written on Gaijin Pot or just from what you've heard from people of maybe a difference in expectation or problems adjusting, et cetera, et cetera? I think probably one of the biggest things is that people are just unprepared for kind of what Japan is like. I think there's a lot of myths about working in Japan, living in Japan, a lot of cliches that kind of get thrown about the internet and people believe those. So people don't look like anime characters? Yeah, surprisingly not. (laughs) (laughs) We don't all dress up like anime and eat $100 watermelons every day. What? But I, I think that that you know the problem is like I don't know if it's a problem, but like I mean Japan is you guys know because you live here, but it's such a structured society that I think a lot of the people who leave they can't kind of never feel like they fit into whatever corporate environment or whatever cultural environment that they thought it would be like, and they're usually the ones that I see leave are the ones who are the least flexible in their thinking. They have this image of Japan, and they think it should be this way. Or worse, is they their attitude is well, this isn't how we do it back home in my country. So you guys are totally wrong. And things like key money, you know, like you know, yeah, it sucks to pay it, but that's what you got to do to get an apartment here. So pay it. Um, yeah. So you know, you 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 see these kind of people rage against all these inequities and all these uh, microaggressions and all these kind of things and then they leave and then the ones who can kind of uh, go with the flow and be a little bit more flexible and learn some Japanese they're the ones who stay and develop uh, you know businesses and careers here in Japan excellent well is there anything else that that you would like to tell us about Gaijin Pot or, or words of wisdom for our listeners any of the any of the above? Uh, what I, you know, just kind of continuing what I said there is I really think that if you are thinking about coming to Japan, uh, I think it's a really interesting experience. It's a good experience because Japan is such a unique country. There's not any other culture that's kind of like it. Um, but having said that, I would recommend you do as much research as you can about Japanese culture and about living in Japan and working in Japan before you come over here. So you don't have this kind of illusion about what you think it's going to be like. Um, and that's easy to be done. You can go on Gaijinpot. We have lots of blogs and articles written by people working here. Um, there's a lot of uh, YouTube videos that you can watch. But I just think that the more research you can do, the better you can prepare yourself, the more enjoyable your experience will be uh, once you finally get here. Makes perfect sense. Well, thank you, Anthony Joe. Yeah, no worries. It's Enjoyed been a- it. Great interview. And one more time, Anthony Joe from GaijinPot.com. That's G A I J I N Pot, P O T.com. Yeah, I really recommend that anybody who actually who really wants to work over here in Japan or, you know, have your own little adventure definitely should check out GaijinPot because it's always the website that I use whenever I've been looking for jobs. And uh, I've actually had a tremendous amount of success finding, at least getting interviews. It's just GaijinPot. But from my perspective, it's it's neat and organized and very easy to use. So thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for being a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, guys. I uh, enjoyed it. And I hope people do come over to Japan. It's a lot of fun. I agree. All right. Well, take care then.